Moncrief on News Talk. Brought to you by Avant Money. Think you're getting the best value from your bank? Think again. 53106 is our text number that will cost you 30 cents. You are listening to the Moncrief Show on News Talk. Indeed, it is time for parenting once again with Joanna Fortune. Afternoon, Joanna. Afternoon, Sean. Right, here's your first question. My four-year-old grandson has started saying he hates me. And when I visit, he says he wants me to go home. I tell him I love him, but I can't help but be concerned. Oh, I mean, it's a tricky one because there's so such little detail in this that we have to go on. So what I'm going to try to do is generically answer this, Sean, in terms of lots of kids do this. In mm. fact, at some stage, all kids are going to make a declaration of somebody that they love in terms of I hate you. Um, And one of the ways we look at it is that when young children, especially this kind of age, when they say things like I hate you, it tends to be more often an expression of frustration, disappointment, fear, you know, something else that's going on for them. And it's more a way of saying, I hate how I'm feeling right now, rather than I hate you. Um, You know, because young children really take time to learn how to express emotion in a healthy way. And, you know, I've often said that this here, but it's our adult job to model how difficult feelings should be expressed, how difficult feelings are managed. So while it feels so personal, so personal when a little child says this, particularly if it's your grandson and Mm. you're going for a visit and you're looking for those hugs and kisses and all of that, that maybe it's about something around just giving him time and space. Because again, without the detail in this, like if if you've a little guy who spends a lot of time with grandparents, particularly when parents are at work, if I see granny coming, it might cue me that that means that mom and dad are leaving. And that can be something that I resist. And I might be saying, it's not that I hate you, granny, but I hate that you're not my mom or dad or whatever it might be. So it can be something like that. It could be that granny uses you know, there are different rules with granny. There could be a different tone of voice. It could be anything at all that just dysregulates me, makes me feel uncertain. And out of that place, I speak that phrase, I hate you. Now, what granny's doing is the right thing, you know, tell him that you love him in response. But I think you can also name some of the feelings that this phrase is masking. I can see that you're very angry right now. So when you feel a bit better, we could play this game or read this book. And I'll just sit here and wait until you feel a bit better. And I love you always, no matter what. So you're also giving him a new way of expressing, oh, it's not that I hate you, it's that I'm angry or, oh, I'm upset or whatever it might be. I think he just needs a little bit more. He's only four, Mm. you know, that he needs a little bit more time and help with this. But the best reassurance I can give granny is it's not about you, granny, like with very rare exception, unless now, granny, you've really done something to bother the child. (laughs) Yes. I would say generally it's about something else. Children this age are so egocentric that their expression of feelings are about how they're feeling, not how they're feeling about you. Yeah, yeah, indeed. Uh, and you could re- I could really see the um, uh, that uh, they associate seeing the grandparent with uh, maybe the parents going out and being yeah. minded or, or going over there for a sleepover. And, and, exactly. Kind of thing. Yeah. Uh, Right. My five-year-old is petrified after visiting a pumpkin farm last weekend at 9am with haunted scenes in a ghostly bus. I thought it was harmless, but it's really after affecting him. He is waking at night time afraid. 
Oh, the poor little thing. And I mm. think, you know, I love that this parent emphasizes it was 9 a.m. Lest we all judge and think, what were you doing with the child there at midnight? It doesn't matter about the time. What, what, And it's a great example, Sean, of this, this time of year. Some kids love it. They love the spookiness, the gore. They love all the darkness of Halloween. And other kids absolutely don't like it at all. Like they really just... Because that blur between what's real and what's imaginary is very fine at this age. So when one of us sees a haunted bus with our adult eyes, we know it's a bus for the season that's in it. It's been well decorated. We may even have thoughts of going, gosh, that's good decorating. Our children look at it and go, there is a bus full of, a, a bus full of ghosts um, right here in front of me. What are we all doing smiling and taking photos? We should run. So they're seeing it in very different way and in very different terms than what we do. I think you have to just really use acceptance and empathy here and accept and empathize with how he's feeling. Because in our rush, like we we could rush very quickly as adults to say it's not real. Just tell mm. him it's not real. But actually what is real is how he's feeling. OK, so while we know that the ghosts and the witches and whatnot aren't real in his mind, the fear he felt, the anticipation, the belief he had, that's very real. And we don't want to risk minimizing or dismissing how he's feeling. I think instead that you do a whole piece with him around showing him that pumpkins are just vegetables. It's, you know, the, these are the days for hacking them up and roasting them, turning them into soup and, you know, remind him that the ghosts, the witches, whatever it might be, that they're all gone away now because Halloween is done. OK, and then you're going to focus on doing a lot of that story based and sensory play to help him come out of that fearful, busy little head of his and really make things. So you could take a little bit of the Halloween into this as a way of bringing him out as well. So you're going to make a potion, but it's going to be a good luck potion, a sleep well potion, a lovely dream potion. You're going to reframe it into what you want to happen for him, that he sleeps well and he's not having bad dreams and his fears go away. But you're using that kind of magical notion of Halloween and spells to bridge that that transitional piece to get him there. I think as well for next year, because I always think it's one thing to say, well, that's done and we'll move on and this will go. But Halloween's going to come back next year. And if you leave him in a state of anticipation for next year, you can anticipate that he's not going to embrace it. He's going to be quite scared of it. So instead, I would say gradually build up to this way ahead of next year by demystifying costumes, showing him that costumes are things people put on and take off. But the people underneath are still the people they always were. Show him how decorations are made. You know, we're coming dare I say the word, we're coming, you know, hurtling into Christmas now that those pumpkins are soup. It's all about Christmas. Um but you could gradually make decorations and start even using Christmas decorations to show how things like that are not real. People hang them up and they take them down and you're gradually building links that he can then connect that with for next year for Halloween. I think watching non-scary movies and doing fun crafts is all a way. There are lots of ways of celebrating Halloween that isn't about the gore or the scariness. So I think just stick with that for now. But do hold in mind that that sensory, that potion play, that getting that tactile sensory piece to get him out of that busy little scared head and just reassuring him that he is safe and that you are here with him and all of those scary things are gone away rather than telling him his fear isn't real. Yeah, uh, indeed. And uh, some, somebody's texted in to say, well, I mean, they're, 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 not, a, uh, they're not a parent themselves, but they've uh, uh, texted in to say, I'm not a parent, I, but I have a great relationship with my nieces and nephews. My nephew said this to me just a few weeks back and then just went back to playing with his toys like it was nothing. 
I was surprised at how crushed I was by it. Turned out being a parent is quite emotionally taxing. Who knew? Uh, indeed, <laughs> yes. Uh, well, now you know, Andy. Yes, uh, no. <laughs> you know a tiny bit of it. My nearly 15-month-old has developed a sleep habit that I am hoping to gradually and gently stop. Since she was very young, she has always loved stroking my face, specifically my eyelashes and eyebrows when she's falling asleep. Now, while this was cute and fine when she was younger... But she's now in her own room and a bigger cot and I have to spend 15 to 20 minutes sitting on the floor with my face squished up against the cot so she can do this while she nods off to sleep. I also think this is stopping her from going back to sleep independently during the night. She doesn't wake often, but when she does, I need to do the same thing to get her back to sleep eventually. I want to stop this habit, but in a gentle way, as I've tried to be kind and responsive to her needs from when she was born. Mother of God. I know, I'm just smiling to myself, though. I'd like to stop it in a gentle way, but just make it stop at the same time. Um, Because there is something about, you know, it was cute when she was younger. She's only 15 months old. She's still very much a young, young child. And one of the things that it always comes up when we talk about sleep in any kind of way, and I think this is a slightly different kind of question about sleep than we have historically gotten, is that our children will learn to fall asleep um, when they feel safely connected to us, even when we're not physically together. And that takes time. It's why they wake up. It's why they check, are we there? It's why they like to hold a hand or in this instance, stroke a face. So it is about building up that capacity to go back to sleep. They don't just get that at a certain age. It takes time and it takes some children a longer time to get there. And that's perfectly normal. And there's nothing wrong with that. Easy for me to say if it's if it's a problem for you, there's definitely you might say there is something wrong with that. But just hold in mind that young children are in general, not just around this issue, but in general, are sensory learners and touch in particular is how they explore the world and indeed the people around them and outside of them. So it sounds like to me this familiar, you know, soft, soothing you know, nice texture of your Mm. face and then the different texture of your hair, that that's actually very soothing for your little one. So this is, I mean, what a wise little girl knowing this is going to make me feel good. I like how it feels. It helps me to go to sleep. Now, I always think if a child has a habit, there is a positive in it, no matter what the habit is, because if you can make one kind of a habit, you can also learn how to form an alternative, healthier a habit that you're happier to live with, let's put it that way, because habits can be broken, but it takes time, patience and persistence. So I just think that she can learn this other one. You can introduce a substitute or transitional object. I'm thinking something like a pit and you might have to, you know, spend some time sourcing this, but a soft or even a more textured teddy Do you know the kind of teddies that have little flutter eyes or eyelashes or hair, different textures on the soft toy? And, you know, you're going to gently yet firmly redirect her to touch the teddy when she reaches for your face. So you're not removing yourself entirely, at least Mm. not at the beginning. But when she reaches for you, you gently take her little hand and redirect it to the teddy and you move her hand in that stroking motion so that she's learning that she can have that sensory that sensory fix, if you like, but from the toy rather than from you. Don't lean in, um, you know, because I mean, I'm just picturing you, you got 15, 20 minutes on the floor with your face pressed up against <laughs> be it a pot or something, you know, that don't physically lean in, but you're going to redirect her hands away from your face, your eyebrows, your lashes, just all you're just regal. I have your hand and then putting it on Teddy. 
and that's it. And once mm. you've said that once or twice, you don't even need to keep saying it. You just keep gently moving her hand. Now, she's not going to high five you straight away for this. She's going to be like, all right, enough of Teddy. Give me your face because that's what she's gotten used to. So that's what I mean. It takes time, patience and persistence. If you need to go a little step in between your face and a Teddy, you could offer your hand instead of your face and then gradually transition from your hand to the teddy either. So you're just putting two transitions in there. So if you can move her straight from your face to the toy, it's going to be one smooth, well, one smoothish transition for you. Um, whereas if you do the hand, you're going to have to do it twice. And I just think give this some time because while habits can be broken and relearned and alternatives and all of that, it does take time. Like you could be looking at anything up to two weeks to redirect her in mm. this way. Yeah, I'm just thinking of a parent coming down every night with the bars of the side of the cotton, you know, <laughs> so was I. on their face. <laughs> and then they have to open the door if somebody calls, you know. <laughs> right. <Absolutely. okay. laughs> There'd be nothing in just getting some sort of 3D model of her face and then just taping it on the inside of the yeah, cot. I mean, you could definitely get the paper mache out this yeah. weekend. You could definitely do, yeah. <laughs> Right, uh, you are listening to the Moncrief Show on News Talk. We do have to take a break. Uh, after that, a six-year-old who won't play soccer. 53106 is our text number that will cost you 30 cents. You may have seen, actually, the very high COVID cases yesterday. Uh, they've just announced today's figure is, uh, yesterday was like 3,700-odd. Uh, today, it's 3,174 and 56 deaths in the last week. So, but they're not saying, or at least Leo Varadkar saying, uh, and as far as you can uh, uh, trust that, saying there's no plans to reimpose any restrictions because in terms of hospital admissions, we are where we should be, uh, he says. Anyway, we'll move on with parenting questions. Joanna Fortune's still with us. Uh, my six-year-old is in senior infants. He's a little shy in general, but plays well with other kids. We have been bringing him to Saturday morning soccer, but he now refuses to go with lots of tantrums and tears. The issue is now flowing into school as all the other boys in his class play soccer at lunch and he's crying each morning saying that nobody plays with him and they don't like him. But the issue is all the boys play soccer and he won't play. We have tried explaining this to him and encourage him to join in, but he won't. This seems to be isolating him and obviously upsetting him now. Have you any advice on how to speak to him about this? We have tried explaining, but it's not helping. It's awful seeing him upset each evening and morning, and we really don't want him to be isolated in the playground or at school. Okay, so, God, there's an awful lot of emphasis in these kids' lives on soccer as oh. the means of playing. So when I read, you know, the issue is all is all the boys play soccer, but he won't play, I kind of went, is that the issue? Are you sure that's the issue? Because yeah. when I'm looking at a child who is a little shy in general, but, you know, does play well with other kids, and you're bringing him to Saturday morning soccer, he's refusing to go, but with tantrums and tears, like that's not just, eh, I'm not bothered going. That's that's a big reaction, and it certainly doesn't sound fun. So I immediately I'd say don't force him. You know, not everybody loves soccer or loves a particular sport or indeed team sports or that kind of setup. It just might not be for him. And I'm also wondering, because you say you have been bringing him and now he's refusing, was he OK going initially? And, you know, what changed? What happened? Was there an incident? Did somebody yell? Did he, you know, make a mistake? Did he miss the ball? Like what happened that he went from wanting to go or at least tolerating going to refusing at that kind of an emotional protest level? And then I'm coming back to this piece about are we sure this is the issue in school? Because at six years old, like, I would be very shocked if every other child in his class is playing 
soccer at the same time yeah. every day in the yard. Because, you know, at six years old, lots of children are still very much in that creative, imaginative, different ways of playing. And so I'm like, is there a group he particularly wants to be friends with that are playing soccer? Are other kids doing other things? Like, it just seems, okay, I'm not quite understanding that or I can't quite picture it. So I'm suggesting you talk to the teacher and perhaps whoever is the yard supervisor in school, if they have somebody designated or perhaps the teacher's rotate that between them but I want to know is this simply about him not liking soccer or you know because there are bound there must be shown other kids playing other things even if they're not in his immediate class that he could play more imaginatively creatively or basically something else with and could the yard supervisor on duty redirect him spot that he's on his own or that he's isolated and redirect him to another group or some other children playing in another way but if it's if it's about feeling excluded or disconnected from his peers, that's the piece I have the question over. I'd suggest talking with the teacher to see how he is in class with his peers, like when they're doing lessons, activities in the classroom. Does he seem social? Does he seem engaged? Or are they noticing he's struggling there as well? Because we're looking at children who he's he's 6 years old like this is probably his first real experience of school you know in terms of going in every day and the schools being open and while there are restrictions in place it's less so than last year for school children so you know this might be a transitional difficulty as well and that some of that is spilling out over onto the peer situation. But I think you've got a few questions asked. I, I'm just going to say to you, stay curious rather than certain. Let's be curious. Is it simply about the soccer and he doesn't want to play? Rather than certain, that's what it is. Because being curious allows you to remain open to another another possibility, another truth. And you could wonder with him about his day. And certainly start asking him what was the best part of his day every day and what bit does he wish he could change and just see is there a pattern to the highs and the lows and making sure that he is getting, it doesn't matter how small it is, he is getting a high every day to say this was the best bit of my day. So just trying to understand the flow of his day and who is he talking to and who is he playing with and who is he sitting with and enjoying and being enjoyed by because I just, I'm struggling to see it's just about soccer because yeah. not all children like to play sports like that yeah I, I, know, I, I don't know about what what happens on Saturday morning soccer but certainly I can say for that age group uh, when it's when it's Gaelic they're not even playing games yet they get them to no, run up and down and, and, and drills yeah, yeah. And, and, and practice kind of ball skills yeah and they don't know yet the rules of the game I don't know how a little a, a group of six-year-old boys uh, would know the, the rules of, of soccer yet unless it's there's some other kids there who are faster than him, perhaps, and he's perceived it, or that there's something else going on there. I think you're right, absolutely. Yeah, just curious over certain with that one. Yeah, uh, Kevin says it would probably be a good idea to just explore other pastimes that aren't sports. A lot of kids find that the sporting environment intimidating. Maybe he's an artsy kid that would be better in an art class or a concert band or something like that. Martin says, I had a bad experience at swim class in which I injured myself when I was a kid. That made me suddenly hate swimming to the bewilderment of my parents. Is there any chance he took a bad fall or collided mm-hmm. with someone and it rattled him? 
Uh, Absolutely. Or he just missed the ball or someone got fed up with him or frustrated with him or it could be anything um, or he simply doesn't like it. Yeah. My mother is hugely focused on her physical appearance, but I feel like it started to negatively impact my two daughters. I'm so used to mum talking critically about her shape that I didn't notice that my kids had picked up on it initially until my seven-year-old said that about her new jumper, this doesn't fit me, I look so ugly. I'm worried that they have already started negative self-talk. I don't want to stop my mum coming over or anything, but how can I remind my girls to focus on the positive? I don't want them to think that their appearance is the only thing that matters about them. I mean, look, initially the instinct is talk to your mom, you know, and of course you can talk to your mother and hold a boundary. We don't, you know, talk about body stuff in front of the girls. That's not something we want to do. We're asking you not to do it. You can do that, of course. But, you know, I know it can also be really hard to do that with your mother or your mother might go, "Mm," but it's such a default behavior. You're saying she's doing this all along. And even when you were a child. So it brings up for me and I wonder how her body issues over the course of your childhood, how did they impact on you growing up and how triggering this might be for you? And just being really aware of what gets activated in you when you hear your mother say those things. And it sounds like you've managed in lots of ways to unhear it, that you just assign it to white noise and you didn't even notice she was saying it or that your kids were picking up on it. Also hold in mind that while as their grandmother, of course, she has uh, an important influence for better or worse, an important influence on their lives. You will be their greatest influencer online, offline. It's going to be you. So you can counteract this by naming when you hear your daughter saying this doesn't fit me. I look so ugly that you don't get into it does fit you. And do you know what? Let's you do this and let's do that. Just stay away from it and say, you know, our bodies are growing and changing shape all the time. Look at all the great things our bodies do. We have to make sure they eat enough so we can run and we can jump and we can climb and you can play whatever sports you're playing or you can do whatever you want to do. And so you're talking about all our bodies can do rather than how they look. And you may even have a, a, a positively stated family motto that in this family, we show love and respect to our bodies. Let's name three things that we are grateful to our bodies for and that you're constantly just stopping and redirecting, reframing and bringing the focus to all the bodies capable of and away from its physical appearance. Don't underestimate the impact that you can have by doing that calmly and consistently um, and being very mindful because these can be blind spots, Sean, as well, that we if our, if we're looking in the mirror and we pull a face or we sigh or we mm. pat a so-called problem area on our bodies, little eyes and ears are always attuned to us. So make sure that when they look at you looking in the mirror, they see yourself smiling at yourself, giving yourself a, a dramatic, exaggerated thumbs up and saying, I feel great today. Um, I'm really pleased with all my body can do for me so that you don't wait for it to be a problem to say those things. But they're hearing you speak about your body in a very different way and you make that more appealing and that becomes the default so that granny's body issues are minimized by the work you were doing yeah but i suppose as you say the older they get they're they're going to be hearing this kind of stuff from from all all directions not just absolutely from 
And that's exactly it. And it's, you know, it's why it's really good to start it now at the age they're at so that you're growing up that conversation and they grow up with that kind of narrative that we talk about, you know, our bodies are so smart and clever. They tell us when we're hungry and they tell us when we're full and they tell us when we need to move and when we're tired and we need to rest. And you start reframing how your daughters think about their bodies and how they relate to their bodies. It starts now. And then as they're engaging with the broader world and social media and external influences, that you encourage a critically analytic eye to all of that and go, you know, of course, the images we see online, they've been filtered and edited. And, you know, you can be playful with that. You can take an image and you can distort it, you know, quite in a kind of cartoonish way. You can distort it dramatically. You can distort it mildly. But basically, you're showing them images can be changed. And what matters is always what our bodies are able for and what, how important they are in our physical well-being. We have just moved... <laughs> I think the answer to this one is pretty obvious, but here we go anyway. Uh, we've just moved into a house with stairs after living for many years in a ground floor apartment. Now our 18-month-old runs straight for the stairs every time we take our eyes off her. We don't want to erect baby gates because they're so ugly and we worry it would be like caging a wild animal. How can we teach her not to go up the stairs? I mean... Okay, first of all, I'm intrigued as to what gates you're looking at, that they look like you're caging a wild animal. But stair gates are a safety measure. They are not an aesthetic feature for your house. So you're either going to embrace them for peace of mind, keeping your daughter safe, or you're going to grow extra eyes in the back and side of your head and you're going to be super fit from constantly running after her because, you know, you can't teach her not to go near the stairs at this age. The more you go and lift her away and you say no to the stairs she thinks it's a fantastic game and it's a mm. really effective way to get you to stop whatever you're doing and rush over to physically be with her pick her up move her do it again do it again do it again that's what children her age do you know she's curious she's playful she's exploring it's literally what she's supposed to do it's a sign of a healthy happy well-developing little child. So at 18 months, the stairs, I mean, look how interesting. Try to think about it from her point of view, how interesting the stairs are. You know, it's it's a challenge. It's something I can experience mastery over. There's a healthy level of risk in there. There's an unhealthy level of risk in there. I'm going to be trying to see all my body can do and pushing myself. I'm telling you loudly, get the stair gates, like get the stair gates. Yeah. Um, you know, you're not locking her into anything. It's not like you're putting her in a pen away from the stairs. It's that you're actually introducing physical boundaries and limits, which trust me, at 18 months, you're going to be starting to do in her in the emotional sense as well, such as saying no and meaning no and no, you can't have this and not now, but later. So actually putting physical boundaries in place is appropriate. You're not doing anything wrong. And honestly, the window of time you're going to need stair gates is is quite small. So just go with it. Yeah, and they don't, you know, if you buy, if you're careful about which ones you buy, they don't leave a mark anywhere. They, exactly. Like suckers, they come, they come out again and then you can pass them on to somebody else who wants to cage yeah, their child like of, a wild animal. <laughs> there's loads of different kinds of ones. So, you know, like, and listen, I'm not even going to get into wait until she learns how to climb over the staircase. That's a whole <laughs> other conversation. But, you know, she's doing what she's supposed to be doing. Now it's your turn to do what you're supposed to do. Yes. I look forward to the question of, Joanna, I've saw seen my three-year-old with a grappling hook and a length of rope. How can I get them to stop doing that? But Joanna, thanks a million as ever. Uh, uh, Joanna Fortune, there you are listening to The Moncrief Show on News Talk. We're going to take a break after that. The last patch of snow. 
Moncrief on News Talk. Brought to you by Avant Money. Think you're getting the best value from your bank? Think again.